I'd given my life to Jesus Christ. I had said the sinner's prayer. I was watching a Billy Graham crusade, and I legitimately surrendered my life to the Lord. It was an exciting afternoon. I knew that I was saved. I knew that I had eternal life. I was singing for eight hours as I drove my motorcycle down from the Bay Area of mid to northern California all the way down to southern California to tell my family and my friends that I had become a Christian. I was going back home. I had eternal life, but boy was I green. I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to repent of. You know, when God comes in and takes control of your life, it is sometimes an eye-opening experience when you find out that He wants it all. Now, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I found out that He kept knocking and wanted to be my Lord. I said, now, wait a minute. How much property do you want here? I said, all of it. You see, I thought that accepting Christ meant that I add Him to my agenda. He comes in and He takes place in my life of all of the other important things. I've got my goals, my schooling, my relationships, my hobbies, my fun things, my Lord, on and on and on. But Jesus will refuse to be a spoke on your wheel. He wants to be the hub around which everything else rotates. He wants to be the center of your life, and He won't be happy till He is. And He won't let go of you till He is. And therein comes the changes. Because we have that constant pulling to set something else in the middle. Jacob was a lot like that. I was a lot like that, and I'm sure I still am. There's still a lot of areas that God wants to deal with me in and God wants to deal with you in. I'll never forget the evening after I witnessed to my brother, told him that he needed to accept Jesus Christ. Boy, you, you would have rebuked me if you would have heard the way I witnessed to my brother. I didn't know any better. I mean, again, I was subject to what I saw on uh, the Billy Graham crusade and I responded to receive Christ, but I had not gone to church it had been about four days, and here I am telling my brother, just accept Jesus. You can still do everything you've been doing. You can still take your drugs. I mean, I was preaching it to him. All you got to do is let Jesus in. And you know, he gave me that strange look. Even an unbeliever had better sense than that. And there was still a lot of areas in my life that weren't cleaned up. I'll never forget, it was that evening that a little Bible that someone had given me, I opened up. It was a paraphrased edition, but it spoke to my heart. And one of the Beatitudes was paraphrased, Blessed is the one whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God was calling me to a life of repentance and obedience. And I scratched my head as I looked at that, and I decided to look it over again and read it and ponder it. Nobody was in the room, so I figured I was safe. And I thought, is my greatest desire to do what God requires? I said, well, sure. You know, that's the good answer. Then I thought about it. I thought, no, it's not. I have a lot of other desires that are taking precedence over what God requires, His claim over my life. And I had to bow my head and say, Lord, I made you my Lord, my Savior, but 
there's still those areas that you want to change. And tonight, I just want to surrender it totally to you. Now, I've said a lot of prayers like that. That was not the first prayer that I said like that. You know, some people talk about the second uh, work of grace. And they said, do you believe in the second work of grace? Yeah, I believe in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I mean, it goes on. That kind of recommitment should be something that marks our life continually. With that, we should look at Genesis chapter 33, where we left off last week. We remember the first wrestling match ever recorded where the angel of the Lord, Jacob describes him as the Lord himself, comes and wrestles with Jacob till the breaking of the day. God was after something. It was absolute surrender. He wanted to change this man called Jacob from a man of the flesh to become a man of the Spirit, someone mastered by God. Some of you tonight are Christians, although mastered more by your flesh than by the Spirit. Some are saved, the Bible says, as though by fire. In other words, you'll just, you know, you'll just skim over the plate. Got singed coming in, but I made it. That's no way to enter into eternity. Peter talked about an abundant entrance. I want that. You know, I'd hate to say, hear the angels say, you know, we were making bets on you. <laughs> now, I know that my salvation is more secure than that. But I want an abundant entrance. And I want God to master every area of my life. And God, by His grace, reveals those areas that are not yet mastered. And I'd be honest with you to say there's many of them that still need mastery. To have the mind of the Spirit over the mind of the flesh. Anyway, the, the end of the chapter, where we left off, we find that Jacob is changing. God has broken him. He goes from being a con artist to a man who is more committed now to his Lord. Corey ten Boom used to say regarding this experience, don't wrestle, just nestle. Come close to the Lord. Don't fight him. Let God change you into someone who just nestles closely to him. And Jacob, at the end of the experience, asks God for a blessing. I won't let you go, he cries out, until you bless me. Before he was ripping blessings off from his brother, now he's asking God for the blessing. God is changing him from a man mastered by the flesh to one who is mastered by the Spirit. He gets a name change. From Jacob, which means heel catcher, manipulator, conniver, to Israel, one who fights victoriously with God, or God rules, or Prince of God. The name change was to be indicative of the character change. The interesting thing, as I read through the Old Testament, is that the name Jacob is used more than the name Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Abram, Abraham, the new name that God gave to him. Isaac 
Not Israel, the new name that God gave to Jacob, but the old name Jacob. Because you are seeing this constant reverting back to the old character, the old nature. The old man keeps taking over. You know, he starts growing, and for every step he takes forward, it seems like he takes several steps backwards. Do you remember the first experience that he had with God at a place called Bethel, the house of God, where he had the vision of the angels going up and down that stepladder? And he said, God is in this place, and I knew it not. That was the first time God broke through, and you could liken that to a Christian experience of conversion. The second experience he had with God was chapter 32, not at Bethel, this time at Peniel, where he wrestles with the Lord. You could look that, at that as consecration. He's devoted to the Lord. His character is changing. But there needs to be a continuance of that in his life. A continuance. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, no more can you unless you abide in me. The secret of Christian growth and Christian strength is the proximity that you live with your Lord. That abiding relationship, which means to maintain a constant living, ongoing communion with Him. Not something that you do once a week, once a month. I'm going to visit God today. Haven't seen Him in a while. Going to go to church and visit God. Now you should be abiding with Him. So that your worship experience publicly is simply a continuation of your worship experience with God privately. Now we get to chapter 33. Jacob's tired at this point. He just left Laban, wanted to get a good night's sleep, didn't. An angel interrupted him, wrestled him to the breaking of the day. He's beat. He's tired. Not only that, he's anxious because in the distance his brother with 400 men, is going to come to meet him. Now, keep in mind, he hasn't seen his bro for 20 years. The last time he saw his brother, his brother said, next time I see your face, you're dead meat. I'm going to kill you, man. He's apprehensive, though God had promised him that he would be in that land, that his descendants would take over. You know, he, he was thinking in his mind, now my descendants can take over, but they can take over and, and they can still repopulate even if I'm dead. I don't want that. And so he's a little bit antsy. So Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, verse 1, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. Now, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. What he does, he's really kind of a wimp. He puts the most expendable, in his view, parts of his family first in line, and leaves what he considers the most valuable ones of his family in the last, Joseph and Rachel, the wife that he loves the most, Leah he didn't care much about, puts her up front. No chivalry, man. And he divides up the family in ranks. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Uh, you might want to keep this in your mind because you're going to find out that Joseph's brothers will resent him in a couple chapters. It began here. They saw the favoritism. They saw that dad loved Joseph most. 
And that created an animosity that is never going to be lived down until eventually they take Joseph and sell him to some foreigners when he goes down to Egypt. Then he crossed over before them and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You know, I wish I had a picture of that. He sees his brother and he probably, as soon as he sees him in the distance, he starts bowing. You know, bows once and comes a little closer, bows again. He just, here's a man who's just seen God groveling before an unbeliever. Now, I've always believed that if you kneel before God, you can stand up to anyone. But here he is again, reverting back to his old ways. Redeemed in a relationship with God, but reverting back to his old ways. Showing this overt homage to his brother because he's scared to death. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, this was a shocker. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Remember God told in the prophecy to Jacob's mom, The elder will serve the younger. But Jacob isn't living by faith right now. He calls himself the servant. Here I am, your servant. Now keep that in mind as you go down because uh, we're going to read that his brother will reverse this. Then the maidservants came near and their children and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children. And they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I meant? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. I like that. In many ways, Esau is more commendable than Jacob. Jacob says, oh, you're my Lord. I'm your servant. He says, to Esau goes, I'm your brother. Now something had happened. Twenty years has healed the wounds. There's a reconciliation that's taking place between these two. Esau isn't angry. He's not out to kill him. The 400 men were not army men. Just simply an entourage to see what was happening in advance. Here Jacob, figuring out ways to scam. He's going to give away 550 animals to his brother as an appeasement offering. So his brother won't be ticked off at him. Divides up the family in case he kills the first bunch. The others can retreat. And his brother says, hey, my brother, I have more than enough. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God and you are pleased with me. Please take my blessing. Oh. One time he was interested in ripping blessings off. Now he says, Here, take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. And he urged him. And so he took it. Something has happened to Jacob. Changes are slowly but surely taking place in this guy's life. You know who this reminds me of? Reminds me of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Remember he was one of the principal citizens of a city of Jericho. He found out Jesus was coming to town. He was curious. It says he was a tax collector and he was rich. 
found out Jesus was coming. And being a short little fella, he decided to climb up the sycamore tree to get a good view because the crowd was thick. He sees Jesus coming down the street. Jesus stops in front of the tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, get down. I'm going to your house for lunch right now. Zacchaeus hops down and welcomes him joyfully into his home. And they go in, they spend the day together. Well, the people on the outside see what's happening and they say, can you believe it? Jesus is at the house of a sinner. But what happens by this encounter is changes begin to take place in the heart of Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector that everyone hated in Jericho. And at the end of the encounter, they emerge, and Zacchaeus stands up and publicly says, half of what I own, I'm now giving to the poor. And if I've ripped anybody off, I'm going to restore fourfold what I have taken. And Jesus rejoices and says, salvation has come to this house, because also he is a son of Abraham. Something took place in that encounter with Jesus Christ. The character of Zacchaeus was changing, and so the character of Jacob. At one time, Jacob, for a bowl of stew, ripped off Esau's blessing and took it to himself. Now he says, here's a blessing, man, take it. No, I have enough. No, take it. I insist. 550 animals. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak, the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please, let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. Then I will lead on slowly at a pace, which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. In other words, they went now in opposite directions. He says, Jacob, come with me. Jacob, true to his nature, reverts back to his, own, his old character, the old Jacob conniver, and he comes up with an excuse, says, you know, listen, I'll catch up with you. He never caught up with him. He never intended to catch up with him. He went in another direction. He was going down toward Shechem. But he didn't want to say, no, I don't want to be with you. I'm going somewhere else. He just fabricated a lie. It's hard to break some of those old patterns and habits of the flesh. Even when God touches you, even when you come to Christ, that old baggage, the old man creeps up. It's very strong. In fact, he doesn't see his brother until the time of his father's death that we get to in the next couple of chapters. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. And he built himself a house and he made booths for his livestock Therefore, the name of the place is called the shelter or Sukkot. Jacob up to this point has been a Bedouin. Now he'll go back to his tents. A Bedouin is somebody who travels around in tents. If you go to the Mideast today, if you're coming to, a, to Israel with us this April or May, we'll show you the Bedouins. How that in the wintertime, they'll go down toward the Dead Sea, down toward Jericho where it's warm. And in the summertime, when it gets really hot, 120, 130 degrees down there, they'll move back up toward the hills of Jerusalem, 23, 2,500 feet above sea level, where it's cooler. So they take their flocks with them, they take their tents, and they just kind of move around and get new grazing land. And Jacob lived the life of a Bedouin. He started up in Padanaram with Laban, goes over to Haran, and then goes down, across the Jabbok River, east of the Sea of Galilee, meets his brother, and now he's going to go back into the land toward Shechem and Bethel. 
He's living in tents. But he comes to this place, decides to build a home, put his roots down. Built himself a house, made booths. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. What I love so far is how gracious God is in going before Jacob to change the heart of his brother. You know, God is interested in your relationships. God is called the God of reconciliation. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And in any relationship where there has been a disjointedness, it is God's highest to reconcile. As much as lies in you, the Bible says, be at peace with all men. That doesn't mean that it's possible to be at peace with all men, but as much as lies within you. You might make an overt gesture to make up with somebody who has a strained relationship with you. And they might say, no, man, you've hurt my feelings. You're out of here. I'm out of here. Forget it. I'll never talk to you again. Well, you tried. But if you know that your brother has ought against you, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled with your brother. Then come back and offer the gift. God wants reconciliation in relationships. And two of the hardest words to say is, I'm sorry. We like to usually say, well, you know, it was partly my fault. But let me tell you something. It's just hard for us to say, I'm sorry. Let's be friends. It's hard to shoulder the blame. But God goes before Jacob, melts the heart of his brother Esau, to show to Jacob that God is true to his promises. God will bring him back into the land and he'll be all right. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent in the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected an altar there, and he called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Remember in the New Testament, John chapter... Four, Jesus passes through Samaria. And he meets a woman who comes down to a well in the city of Shechem, a city that has on either side of it two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? If you don't, you'll get to it as they enter the land. That's where the law was uttered, the blessings and the cursings. One was shouted out from one mountain, one from the other mountain. At the well, as Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, Jesus says, you know, woman, if you knew who it was who was speaking with you, you would have asked him for living water, and he'd give it to you. Her retort was, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? Imagine asking God that question. Are you greater than Jacob? Who do you think you are, God? <laughs> Jacob came to Shechem. From this point on, he digs a well, and it lasted till the time of Jesus. In fact, if you have the guts to take a rental car through Samaria, go to Jacob's well. And if you can get, it, get in without getting your car pelted with rocks, I visited one time, and they said, Don't go to Shechem. And, of course, the tour group was down in Jerusalem, and I had a couple extra days, and I thought, you know, always wanted to go there. And the riots have been quelled the last several weeks. It's not a hot spot as much as it used to be. I just think I'll get a rental car, and I'll go up to Shechem. 
So I decided to go through there. I'll tell you, going through some of those parts, man, it was a little bit scary. So what I decided to do is I found an Israeli soldier who was hitchhiking on the road, and they carry their 9mm Uzis fully loaded. So I decided, I'll pick him up. He's hitchhiking. I'll take him through Shechem. And, uh, you know, I've got it covered, got insurance, you know. If you went to Shechem today, you would still find the well that Jacob dug when he went to Shechem, still with water, still flowing, still used. The water that, that flows from there underground is still used by the inhabitants. He bought the parcel of land. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, she boarded Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Let me just stop right here and give you a little bit of introduction. Chapter 34 is one of those chapters I wish wasn't recorded. It's a dark chapter. Jacob has really neglected much of his family. He didn't love Leah that much. He showed partiality to Rachel, to Joseph. The kids knew it. Leah knew it. And the family has suffered. And chapter 34 is a dark chapter, an incident of sexual immorality and murder and the murder is on the part of Jacob's sons. They murder the inhabitants of this land. You know, that to me shows the integrity of this book. I have read biographies of famous people where the person writing the biography paints this wonderful, almost flawless picture of this person and leaves out all of the corruption, all of the crud. The Bible tells you the truth about its characters, even about its heroes. They weren't flawless. They weren't perfect. They sinned. The point is, is that God loves imperfect people, and God uses imperfect people, and God takes them and changes them. And sometimes growth is a slow process, folks. guy came to me today, man, just broken up. He came to Christ recently, and he said, man, I'm coming here, and I'm growing, and I'm excited, but, you know, I've got these these old patterns, these old habits. I don't want to live under them anymore. I said, well, hey, that's, that's great. But now you're born again. You don't expect a baby to go up to his dad in the first month and say, Dad, couldn't do it anyway, can't speak. Dad, give me the keys to the car, I'm ready to drive. No, he's got to learn to waddle. And then he'll finally get his footing, he'll learn to walk. Pretty soon he'll learn to run. But you start out crawling, waddling, walking, and running. Now, your growth can be accelerated by your cooperation. There are some people who seem spiritually to sprout, and there are other people who seem to stagnate. I'll never forget a guy in my high school came to know Christ. Within two months, he was out on the front lawn by the flagpole giving Bible studies. He didn't clear it with the principal. You know, in those days, he just said, I'm going to go for it. Invited his friends out there, 20 or 30 kids out there, and was giving in-depth Bible studies after two months of knowing Christ. He did a great job. He was an evangelist and a teacher. Just grew, 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 and led others to Christ and taught the Word. Then there are others who just seem to come up to this little plateau and just level. There's no growth. Now, you can accelerate your spiritual growth by cooperating with God, by letting Him in, letting Him change you. One of the most repeated scriptures I share at this church is 2 Peter chapter 1. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. 
whereby have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Therefore, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And he gives a list of ingredients that you can add to your faith. So he speaks of spiritual growth on two different fronts. He says, first of all, there is a divine side and there is a human side. The divine side is that God has given you all the resources necessary for you to be a spiritual giant. Everything that pertains to life and godly living through the knowledge of Him. You've got exceeding great and precious promises. You've got a new nature. Now He gets to the human side. He says, now that you have these resources, this is what I want you to do. Cooperate. Therefore, Giving all diligence, literally translated, putting every bit of effort you have within you, add, literally in Greek, lavishly supply love, brotherly kindness, faith. It gives a whole list. If these things be in you, he continues, and abound, you will never be barren, you will never be unfruitful in the knowledge of God. The word barren is an important word. It means, literally, does not work. If you're cooperating with God, He gives you all these resources. You never have to say, God, give me more love. You've got enough. Just use what you got. Lord, give me more power. You don't need it. You got it. Just use it. Apply it. Cooperate. List those additives. Add them to your life. Avail yourself to God's resources. You'll be growing. And you'll never be able to say, Christian life doesn't work, man. You know, I meet a lot of people who say, well, I tried that. I started following Christ for a while. I was sort of hitchhiking in the Lord. Got a free ride for a while, but it didn't work. I'm glad it's working for you, man, but it's just not my cup of tea. Now, it's not that it didn't work. You didn't. He's given you everything you need, but then you have to cooperate by obediently adding, lavishly supplying. Don't you want your walk to have a lavishness about it? The resources of Christ, you're experiencing His power, His love, His peace. Then cooperate with Him. Think of it this way. Somebody, let's say, let's say you live in a little apartment. Can't afford much. Let's say you can't afford any furniture. And so you have cardboard boxes that you got down at the dumpster. And you have them inside, a little towel on top. That's your coffee table. Another bigger box that you got from somebody's TV set. That's your dining room table. Pillows around it for chairs. But you're happy, man. You like it. Home sweet home. Somebody comes over, knocks on your door, looks at your house as nice pad you got here. It's very cozy, very comfortable. However, and he pulls out pocket wad of money. And he just starts counting the hundred and hundred. 200, 300. Your eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And he just hands it to you. He says, here, just take the whole wad. Puts it in your hand. And go. He says, now, go out, man, and get what you want. Go get the furniture you want. Sky's the limit. Lavishly supply what you want in this house. Are you going to sit there? Oh, no, you know, I like my car- cardboard box, really. I just, it's, it's enough, please. Easy to dust. It's disposable. No, I insist, he says. Please, I insist. It's on me. 
No strings attached. Lavishly supply. Trick this place out. Man, get that nuclear-powered stereo you always wanted. and <laughs> The waterbed you can surf on. Get it all. <laughs> Sky's the limit. That is the Greek idea when he says, give all diligence, add to your faith. Virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, brotherly love to brotherly love, kindness. If these things be in you and overflow, abound. You'll never be barren nor unfruitful. Add. God has given you all the resources. Take them, use them, and turbocharge your faith. Spice it up by cooperating with God. And you'll be able to be accelerated. Now, Jacob will have to go through a very terrible crisis before he starts you know, getting the reins and cooperating with God again. It sometimes takes a crisis to drive us back to God. Well, he's about to have a pretty hefty-duty one here. It's sort of like the stone that causes a landslide in this chapter. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her which could mean by consent they had sexual relations, or it could mean he raped her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as my wife. She fell in with the wrong crowd. She's hanging out in Shechem. Hivites are there. They're not God's people. They're not the covenant people at this point. She falls in with the wrong crowd and gets sexually involved either by consent or by force. You know, it's a, it's a true pattern that young men will give love, so-called, that they might get sex. Conversely, often young women will give sex that she might gain love. He'll say, oh, if you love me, if you really love me, you know, you don't love me, otherwise, you know, you'd, you'd consent. She wants that love and that acceptance sometimes to the extent that she will give absolutely anything to get it. But women, if he says, I'm doing it because I love you, look him straight between the baby blues and say, you lie. Because the Bible says love is patient, which means if he can't wait until you get married, he doesn't love you. Your body is the holy of holies. Guard it. And if he gives you this line, I don't know if it's going to work out, you know, you're holding back. Say, that's right, I'm holding back. And you're history, bub. And write him off. Guard it. Guard your body. Save it for someone in the future. That that trust in that marriage will be stable and not upset. Well, she's violated, and in those, that time period, that would kill all hopes of her having a valid marriage. But he does love her. He wants to marry her as his wife. 
So Shechem spoke to the father of Hamor, saying, Get the, this woman as a wife. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. He didn't say anything. You know, He was probably in shock or he wanted to have a family conference. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because they had done, he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. That sexual immorality was wrong. A thing like this should not be done in Israel. That's the first mention of this nation by the name of Israel. Now more and more you're going to see that name pop up referring to this nation that is developing in the sons of Jacob. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. Now, this is honorable, all right? I got I to give Shechem that much. He loved her and he did want the marriage. And to me, that is honorable. He's bearing responsibility. Now, I did not vote for Ross Perot in this last election. But there was one thing he said. There's actually a lot of things he said that I liked. And on one of the interviews... He was talking with, you know, started talking about morality. You know, he's going, now, see. <laughs> he's easy to imitate. It just comes upon me every now and then. It's the election spirit. He said, I want to say something now to the young man. He said, if you get a young girl pregnant, and he said, if you don't bear responsibility for that child... You are the scum of the earth. I, I thought, I said, you know, I like that. He's bearing responsibility. However, just because there is a pregnancy that occurs, not always is the solution marriage. Sometimes the solution is a, have the baby, don't abort that baby, now there's a life. You know, I heard something else in the elections by another group. And they said, uh, you know, I wish that you people would get out, get out of the people's bedrooms. You know, in other words, you have freedom of choice. And as I was thinking about that, I said, you know, that's not even the issue. These people aren't in their bedrooms. They had the freedom of choice in their bedroom. And now there's a pregnancy. We're not talking about going into people's bedrooms. We're talking about after the bedroom is past fact, and there now is another life involved, not just your life, not just two people's lives, but a third-party life. And that child does not have, the, at that point, the ability to choose. They just missed the point totally. And I'm kind of digressing myself, so I better get back. But it's not always the solution. Sometimes the best thing is to carry the child through and give it up for adoption. Because there's a lot of people who aren't able to have them and would want them. But he, anyway, he wants her. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give, him, give her to him as a wife. Make marriages and so forth. Verse 10, And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. <laughs> you know, he's scamming them. This guy is scamming old, old Jacob. Because he says, oh, hey, you know, go ahead, have some land. And... What he really wanted is to take Jacob's possessions. Because you can read ahead over to verse uh, 
23. Notice what this same man says. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let, this con- let us consent to them. That's a private thing that he has with his own boys later on. But he's scamming uh, Jacob at this point. Hamor is. So he's trying to deceive him. A dwell, trade, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And Shechem said to her, her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry, the gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us. To be one people, if every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now, this is a cover-up. Jacob's sons are scheming like their dad, like their uncle Laban. It's a plan to (laughs) incapacitate the men of the city for a period of time. You can imagine how they would feel after being circumcised. They wanted to take advantage of that and go in and kill them. But there's also a lesson here. It could be, as some scholars suggest that they are trying to bring them in to become one with them by the ritual of circumcision. Go through this ritual. If you go through this ritual, it'll be okay. There's a lot of people like that in the church who feel if they go to a church, they carry a Bible, if they sing the same songs, they go through that little ritual that they're Christians. Not so. Circumcision or baptism or any other ritual apart from the reality of that ritual is absolutely meaningless. Well, by you, no favor at all with God. And a lot of people try to cover up what they lack by a ritual. She doesn't cut it. You know, I, speaking about dating like we were a minute ago, I've met people who will make so-called commitments to Christ so that they might marry that cute young gal who's a Christian and won't compromise her Christian values. She says, I'll only marry a Christian. Really? Well, I just became one then. (laughs) 
I'll buy a Bible, small investment. But honey, I love you. Let's serve the Lord together. Really, why don't you wait it out and see if he becomes the spiritual head. See how he grows. You know, Mark Twain was dating a young girl who was a devout Christian. She said, I will not marry anyone who is an unbeliever. And so he said, oh, I'm a believer. He married her. Mark Twain, as you know, became very famous, traveled throughout the world, saw different religions, was exposed to them, was gone several months out of the year. He came home from one of his journeys at the peak of his career, and he said, honey, let's just get down to nuts and bolts. I'm not a Christian. I never was a Christian. I don't want anything. To, I'm not going to church. I don't want anything. It devastated that young lady. He was putting on airs. And she was willing to believe it without really seeing fruit in his life. And it devastated that relationship. You know, just kind of going through the motions. Going through the circumcision, so to speak. Without really seeing evidence in their lives. Don't let vocabulary fool you, by the way. A lot of people have Christianese down pat. You know, all the buzzwords. But wait to see the fruit, not just the talk, but the walk. You know what amazes me too, before we finish out this chapter, is Jacob. He's just kind of a wimp. He's just, he doesn't take a stand. He didn't say, hey, Moore, your son defiled my daughter. Boys, I don't want you to be rash here. That's not right either. But he didn't even take a stand for what is right. Kind of waited for the sons to come home, kind of see what they do. And at the end, after the murderous event, he didn't really con- is, is not even concerned about the rape or the sexual immorality, but his own self. I love it when I see people willing to take a stand for what they believe. A lot of people are afraid to just take a real stand because their little group might reject them or because it's politically incorrect to say certain things. Some people might be offended, so tone it down. That's not politically correct. That, hey, if you believe something, have the conviction enough to let people know where you stand. Come out in the open. I respect a person who will come directly to my face and tell me something they believe or something that is wrong and discuss it. I have absolutely no respect at all for somebody who will write a little note and put it in the agape box, not signed with a phone number or address, just kind of, you know, this little dump mail. In fact, I tell my staff, if there's not signed, positive or negative, don't read it, unless it's a prayer request, of course. But don't even read it. If, If you believe something, have the guts enough to say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, let's discuss it. Otherwise, I have no respect for that kind of a person. I like the old letters in the New Testament. They sign their name at the beginning. Paul and Apostle. Oh, this is from Paul. Jacob just lacked the guts, the fortitude to say, this is what I believe, this is what I stand in for. Let's read on. Verse 25, it came to pass on the third day when they were in in pain. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered the city because their sister 
had been defiled. Talk about revenge. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city, what was in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive. They plundered even all that was in the houses. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. I can't believe you boys ruined my reputation. His daughter has been raped. People have been murdered by his sons. And he's concerned about his stinking reputation. You've made me obnoxious. Notice how much, notice how personalized this is. You've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites, the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. This guy had eye disease. All he was concerned about is him. Not concerned about his family at all. The chickens are coming home to roost. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Actually, at this point, he had no testimony because he was no different from the unbelievers. His family was no different from unbelievers. There was no difference between the sons of God and the sons of the devil, so to speak. There was a point in church history in the Middle Ages when one of the popes took Thomas Aquinas into the Vatican treasury and showed him all the wealth and said, Look, no longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. Thomas Aquinas saw it and said, That's true. But also they can't say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You've lost the power because of the compromises. Jacob was a man of compromise. Did he have a relationship with God? Yep. Was he growing? Yeah, he takes some steps up and then boom. More steps up, boom. And now, since he's neglected his family, it's starting to show in the end. He has a broken family because he himself has been broken up and tarnished and compromising with the things of the world. God is a God of change. What is beautiful, we didn't get to it tonight, is chapter 35, where we'll pick up next week, the first recorded revival in the Bible, where Jacob comes back once again, and God receives him, God forgives him, and he starts taking leadership of his home once and for all. He puts away the idols. He puts away the areas of his life that ought not to be there and he rededicates himself and his family, dedicates themselves to God. And his relationship with God starts taking on new meaning. He had an encounter with God at Bethel. He had an encounter with God at Peniel. But he had a lot of his encounters with his flesh still trying to dominate and take control. Tonight, you are either controlled by the spirit or by the flesh. If you are not a Christian, you are finding yourself sort of like in a washing machine being tumbled and jostled, controlled by the flesh. You might say, I'm going to be a better person. There's a few things I'm going to take control of and do. And you make the commitment and you start doing it and you fail. 
you lack the resources, you lack the power, you haven't come into a relationship with the living God yet. Some of you might be Christians who are following God and you make a few steps forward, boom, go backwards. And you're still dominated by the flesh, you would be considered a carnal Christian. A little bit of growth, but on that stagnant plateau. You can avail yourself to God's resources and obediently apply those resources to your life and add, and you will never be barren nor unfruitful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That takes a recommitment. Some of you have come tonight invited by family members and you have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You say, now wait a minute. I've been religious all my life, young man. I've been to church. And you know what? I think that's great. I really do. I'm not knocking that at all. There's a big difference between going through the motions and going to church and coming to Christ. It's funny. That becomes the excuse for many people. Do you know Christ? I go to church. That's, that's not what I'm asking you. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the children of God, to as many as believe, trust Him, rely upon Him in His name. There is a power that is at your disposal when you become at God's disposal. He'll give you the power to conquer the flesh, power to conquer those old habits, growth, peace, meaning. But that takes a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Nothing else can substitute for it. No religious experience. No being signed on some church's roster. No ritual. Jesus said to one of the most religious figures of his day, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Some of you have wondered where that phrase comes from. It's not a new phenomenon. I noticed during the elections they talked about the born-again Christians as opposed to all other Christians. Listen, if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. That's what Jesus said. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, you're religious. You walk around with the robes, you go through the motions, but you need to be born again. He said, well, how can a guy be born when he's old? Jesus said, I'm not talking about the flesh or the body. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Unless you are born from above, it's a spiritual awakening that takes place when you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you ask Jesus to come into your heart, you receive him as your Savior and as your Lord, he washes away your sins and you become a brand new creature in Christ. What an exciting prospect. You know what Fernando was singing a minute ago. He doesn't know how anyone could say no to this man, Jesus Christ. And yet, some of you have said no for a long time. You've observed people in your family who are Christians. You said, well, that's neat for them, but no, not for me. You know what the Bible says? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Some of you say, hey, I, I'm not saying there is no God. In the Hebrew language, literally it says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. It's a choice rather than the mental capacity. In other words, just like if the waitress comes by in the restaurant and says, do you want some coffee or dessert? You go, no coffee, no dessert. 
I don't want. I've had enough. No God. I won't let him assume control over my life. Some of you have said that for a long time. Right now you are sensing in your heart the conviction of the Holy Spirit who's drawing you to himself. And he wants you to respond tonight. He wants you to be birthed into the kingdom of God, to be born again. It must be by your consent you must choose to do so. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask some of you tonight to make that commitment for the first time. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is right now in this place drawing people to Jesus Christ. Father, as you have spoken to the heart of Christians and those who are not yet born again, I pray now, Father, that you would bring many of them to a public demonstration of a commitment to you. And so I ask you, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you would like to meet this man, Jesus, and have an encounter with the living God and know that your sins are forgiven and have all things become new and all of the resources at your disposal, a brand new life is being offered to you the forgiveness of your sin for 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 you the